you, Mike, and good morning, church. Great to see you on this Lord's Day. I do hope you're doing well. Even as we come to the second Sunday of October, it is October 10th of 2021, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said. So looking forward to the events to come, as Mike mentioned, with Missions Conference beginning the 17th on the 24th of the month. Yes, we'll still be worshiping, and we'll have the privilege and the exciting opportunity to welcome some new members into the life of our church on the 31st. It's Reformation Sunday. Um, maybe by then the commons will be completed, and, and we'll have a little bit of a dedication ceremony and service, if that's possible. If not, then maybe the first Sunday of November. So, so many good things happening in the life of our church. Glad that you are a part of it. Thanks, too, for plugging in and getting a part, be a part of our growth group ministry. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, this morning to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to be in the fifth chapter and all the way through the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua this morning. A great deal of work for us today. As we think about, as we recite the story of the collapsing of the walls of Jericho, We sang about that in the opening song this morning. I don't know why Peter didn't sing it seven times, Um, but here we go. You know, while I was born in New Jersey, I grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line where football was king. Whether peewee football for kids were the powerhouse college programs of the SEC. In the culture of my youth, football players were the giants who walked the earth. I went to a high school where the guys on the football team went on to be standouts in college and several wore Super Bowl rings during their years in the NFL. It would have been fun to be one of those giants, but I was a late bloomer. I could have played peewee football all the way through high school. I had the speed but my body was not able to withstand those punishing blows. And yes, I padded up for practice every day during the season. And when game time came, no one warmed that bench better than me. And one day I worked up enough courage to ask the coach, hey, coach, how come you never put me in? And he turned to me and said, hey, Peanut, to be honest with you, I'm I'm afraid if I ever put you in, you'd never come out alive. Beyond sports... God has not appointed us during this time and place to warm the bench. He has a mission for each of us. God's normal plan is to use his people to accomplish his purposes. But in order for us to accomplish the purpose that God has for us, we will often arrive at least at a critical time and sometimes several moments thereafter during life, we will arrive at a certain crossroad, a crisis of character and purpose that will affect everything. I want to talk about that for a few moments this morning. As again, we come to the book of Joshua this morning, to the fifth chapter of this book, where the man himself experiences such a crossroad during an extraordinary encounter with God that completely impacted the way he, pre- he approached his own personal mission. Now, I hope you know that no story is retold in the Bible simply for the sake of telling it. Every story in the Bible is told to help us see God's ways. 
God's ways in your life and in my life today. And so again, with your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 5, last week Pastor Mike took us through the Israelites' miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, and now at the beginning of chapter 5, Israel has, if you will, both feet in the promised land where they can begin anew. And one of the first steps they took at the opening verses of chapter 5 is, is for all of the men who came out of the wilderness to be circumcised. This was a right that acknowledged the people of God. This was done, chapter 5, verse 9 says, to roll away the reproach of Egypt. Once the men recovered, the second step the nation took was to observe the Passover. For the second time, only since they left Egypt, the rite of circumcision allowed them to observe the Passover because no man uncircumcised could celebrate the Passover. Those two events, two Two events repeating something that God had given to his people long ago were the first things they did the moment they crossed into the land. But one other thing happened now that the Israelites stood on the other side of the Jordan, and that was that God's gift of manna falling from heaven ceased. Manna was God's provision for their journey through the wilderness wanderings. And now that they were in Canaan, there was no need for more manna. So no more manna burgers. No more manna shakes, no more manna cotty. A little little nod to Keith Green there. They would now eat the produce of the land of Canaan, a land that they were told was flowing with milk and honey. Circumcision. Passover. No more manna. Now before them stood Jericho. The road to the promised land ran through that city. And this ancient double-walled city was the first obstacle that stood between the Israelites and all that God promised. Joshua had been fighting the battles of Israel, the battles of the Lord, they were called, since he was a young man. But before the battle of Jericho, he had never led an attack against a walled city. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 1 says that the walls of Jericho were so high it appeared as if they reached the sky. He knew nothing about siege warfare. He had neither experienced the effort required with all the resources to take a city. So it would have been entirely normal for him on the eve of battle to have a bad case of the butterflies. Imagine what goes through a person the night before battle. Aaron Bazin at West Point's Modern War Institute once pulled 304 military veterans spanning Vietnam to the present day. And not surprisingly, the most reported physical response on the eve of battle was increased heart rate, rapid breathing, muscle, muscle tension, tunnel vision. Joshua must have been experiencing all of that and more. And so on the eve of battle, it seems in the middle of the night, He goes and takes a survey of the city's walls. He is all by himself. And verse 13 of chapter 5 indicates that Joshua is close to Jericho. The opening words say Joshua is standing at its walls. And he looks up and he sees an imposing figure. Watch with me in verse 13. Joshua is standing at the walls. When he lifted up his eyes and looked... And behold, a man was standing before him with drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. At first, the unidentified figure is called a man because that's what he looked like. But it's obvious that Joshua has not encountered a mere man. What we have here is the language of a theophany. The word theophany is the combination of two Greek words, God and appearance. And so a theophany is an appearance of God. This is something that has happened throughout Scripture, especially in the pages of the Old Testament. For instance, in in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham experiences a theophany, an appearance of God. In Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 says this, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now watch the phrasing in verse 2 of Genesis 18. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And then when you read Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, it also says that Joshua did what? He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, the exact same wording. He sees a man standing before him. So I think that language is simply the the sacred writer's way of alerting us to the fact that Joshua is having an encounter with God himself. And two times this figure is identified as the commander of the Lord's army. Literally, he is the prince of the Lord's army. And in my opinion, this is not just an a theophany, an appearance of God, but a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So the Son of God came down from heaven, this time not with literal human flesh and blood, but in the appearance of a warrior, a divine warrior. He appears in a way that fits the moment, and he is seen by Joshua holding a drawn sword, indicating that he is ready to fight. And you can imagine that Joshua's heart is just ready to explode out of his chest when he asks a perfectly normal question that you would ask of anyone else except God. (laughs) Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua asks him, whose team are you on? I'll refrain from asking whether God is a Red Sox or a Yankees fan. I think we know the answer. Joshua asks, are you friend or foe? The heavenly commander said to the Israelite commander, rather bluntly, no. The Lord never wastes words. And if you ever ask God a question and his immediate answer is no, it's a pretty good indication you've asked the wrong type of question. But I am, he says, the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. He makes it clear that God doesn't come to join 
human teams or political parties. He says, I have not come to choose sides, but to take charge. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was asked if he was on the side, if God was on the side of the Union. And though the cause of the Union was just, the president wisely said, sir, I am not so concerned whether God is on my side. Rather, I am concerned whether or not I am on his. Joshua realized his mistake because he knew he was in the presence of God. And when one is in the presence of God, trivial questions vanish. The only legitimate response to one being in the presence of God is humility and adoration. And so Joshua hits the ground with his face to the dirt and he worships. Proving that this commander was, was more than just an, an angel or a mere man because, because angels refused to be worshipped. With his face in the dirt, Joshua finally asked the right question. What does my Lord say to his servant? What are you saying to me? He is God. I am his servant. God is not to be trifled with. He is not to be toyed with. He doesn't play petty games. He doesn't share his throne with anyone. God is in charge. It is not Joshua in 1400 BC. It is not the president or the prime minister or king of any country. It is not you or I. None of us are really the boss of anything. We don't call the shots. We are under his authority. So here's an important truth we must always keep in mind. When it comes to our relationship with God, we don't give orders, we receive them. We don't tell God what to do, he tells us. We don't manage the deity, he manages us. And we don't ask him, whose side are you on? We don't ask God, how are you going to fit into my plans and how are you going to bless my dreams? Here's an ego-shattering reality. Jesus doesn't side with my opinions. What matters is if I agree with him. He's the commander. And we are not here to recruit him to be on our side. He commands us to take a knee and to bow before him. And friends, this vision, this picture of Joshua on his face before the living God even instructs us on how we are to pray. When we pray, even, we do not tell God what to do. I listen to so many requests and prayers for requests today, and sometimes it does feel as if we are ordering God around. I urge you, I really do, to be careful of turning your prayers into orders as if God is our genie and a bottle who exists to grant us our wishes. He is God Almighty. We are under his authority. He is the one before whom we surrender, and he is the one who is asking every one of us today, are you unreservedly for me? Remember the bumper sticker from a few years back that said, God is my co-pilot. What a naive thing to say. And then somebody else printed a new bumper sticker. If God is your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat. God does not call Joshua his co-commander. He does not call us his co-navigator. 
He doesn't need Joshua to fight for him, though he will use him. But those two things are very different. And God doesn't need us, but he uses us. And and I hope you have come to learn the distinction between the two. He doesn't choose to be on your team or mine. Jesus has a mission, and he is asking us to join him in it. And here's the good news. Jesus has never raised his sword and lost the fight. And before the walls of Jericho fell, I want to suggest to you that the battle was already declared because of who God is. But secondly, in Joshua's own experience, the battle was already won when he fell on his face before the presence of God. For Joshua, the battle of Jericho was decided right here in your mission. Your purpose in life, the very reason for why God has designed you and he has put you in this place at this time, begins or ends by whether or not you assume a posture of of submission and and surrender before him or whether you strut around and concede and arrogance, thinking that it's all up to you. See, right here is where your mission begins or ends. And victory does not belong to the person who immediately takes charge, but to the person who first bows their knee before the Almighty. And I know this, that surrender doesn't come easily for any of us. I surrender one moment, and then I take it back the next. It takes discipline to surrender to him on a daily basis, the discipline to bow before God, to submit your life to him, And then to do what he tells you to do. The Lord said to Joshua, take off your shoes. Because the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. Joshua's experience on the eve of battle is strikingly similar to what Moses experienced at the burning bush on Mount Sinai. In fact, the words spoken right here in verse 15 are identical to the exact same words that God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 5. The only difference really is that there is no pyrotechnic special effects here, but rather a powerful affirmation that God is with Joshua. This is his own burning bush experience. Now, the end of chapter 5 continues on into chapter 6 because they really do belong together. It's a very unfortunate chapter break at this point, so ignore the chapter division. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, we'll see that Jericho is in complete lockdown mode. All the gates of the city are shut. In the beginning in verse 2, the commander of the Lord's army will then outline to Joshua the battle plan for taking the city. So follow me right into the next chapter, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Jericho was like an armed fortress. And a city that is like that is impossible to attack. It's a fortified city. And it's impossible to take it without first setting siege and cutting off access to food and water and then eventually using maybe ramps and battering rams to take the city. But that would take a long time. And this is right on the eve of battle itself. And so the commander of the Lord dictates to Joshua the most peculiar and, I must say, wacky battle plan ever devised in the history of warfare. Verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. I love that. Notice the past tense. And God's economy 
It's as good as done. I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Verse 3, you shall march around the city, all of the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. <laughs> Proof that, that Joshua had submitted to the Lord fully was that he didn't respond in Hebrew to the Lord by saying, you got to be kidding me. That's the plan. The whole plan seems absurd. I mean, look at it. There's marching and blowing horns and shouting against the most fortified city in the land of Canaan. Sounds more like an, a marching band than an army. March around the walls once a day for six days. March with the Ark of the Covenant in the front. Put seven priests in front of the Ark. On the seventh day, march around Jericho seven times. Have the priests blow their horns as they march. And on the seventh time around, on the seventh day, have the people shout. And when they shout, the walls will come down. And when the walls come down, enter the city and conquer it. That's the plan. You can't help but notice the quadrupling of seven. Seven priests, seven ram's horns, seventh day, seven times. The number seven is, of course, the number of creation. It is the number of completion. There is a sense here, though, this number seven being quadrupled as it is, is an indication of a decreation. God is going to destroy the city of Jericho. And then Joshua left the Lord's presence. And he went out and he spoke to the priests and then to the armed men and finally to the people and made known to them the Lord's instructions. Verse 6, so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And again, I can imagine the people especially the soldiers saying, okay, so what do we do the second day? Same thing. And the third day, same thing. You catch the drill. Excuse me? I can imagine someone saying, and Joshua responding, yeah, we're going to march around the city for six straight days, and at the end of each day, we're going to return to camp. And then on the seventh day, here's the big day, we're going to go around seven times. And after that long day of marching, the priests are going to blow their horns and everyone is to shout really, really loud. Joshua's compliance to the Lord is commendable and remarkable. Because you see, here it is. This is where Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 15 through 15 come to play right here. Because once we have surrendered to the Lord, we comply to his orders no matter how illogical or irrelevant they may seem. We do what he says. Surrendering is the hard part. 
Letting go of our egos and our own agendas and our own plans, that's, that's really the easy part. Because once we have totally surrendered to him, then obedience is easy. But if we don't do what God says, have we really surrendered to him? Did any of this make sense to the Israelites? Probably not. But they did it. And they didn't just respond with partial obedience, but total obedience. Pick it up in verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them, the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. By the way, Joshua added one more detail about their six-day march around the city. They were to do so in complete silence. There must have been something extremely eerie about that. No talking. Verse 10, Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, and then you shall shout. Verse 11, so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So in effect, Joshua said, you've heard what God said, now just do it. Now that was pretty ingenious, I think, this, this command to be silent for no talking to occur. Because the very nature of the campaign itself would have led people to grumble and complain. And since God had spoken, all murmuring was out of line. So here are these thousands marching around in silence with this elaborate gold chest in the middle and a cadre of priests blowing horns. And and I can imagine Jericho's mighty men of valor taunting them, maybe on top of the walls from a distance, Hey, walking around in circles doesn't get you anywhere. By the third day, I wonder if those same men of valor standing on the walls of Jericho started laughing nervously, wondering what in the world are these people up to? What we have in this amazing scene is what God does again and again. He confounds the wise. He turns the wisdom of the age upside down. Verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp and so they did for six days. Finally, day number seven has come, and they follow the plan. They rose early. I am sure their muscles were sore and tired. They had marched around the city already six times. Now they're ready to do it seven full times. After the seventh time, they blew their horns. They shouted a great shout, and the unthinkable thing happens. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. They entered the city, 
and they fought to a complete victory. On the seventh day, verse 15 says, they rose early at the dawn of day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times, and at the seventh time, here's that number seven, 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 when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Skip down to verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. You read that and you say, there was an awful lot of repetition here. There was this kind of same tune being sung again and again. And then finally the walls fell and the city was captured. And you ask yourself, how did it happen? Maybe it was an earthquake. Maybe it was the vibrations emanating from two million people shouting all at once. People always want to know what was the secondary cause to the falling of the walls of Jericho. How did it happen? God did it. He did it. And I want you to notice something that is conspicuous in its repetition. Because there's the feeling of so much repetition in this passage, but there was a very precise and very particular formation that the Israelites marched in every single day. For the Ark of the Covenant was always in the very center. Somewhat intriguing to me that the battle against Jericho is described in just a few verses. But 14 times in Joshua chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. That same Ark that we saw last week carried into the Jordan River and the waters parted is now at the very center of the march around Jericho. That Ark of the Covenant is the representation of the presence of God in the midst of his people. How did the walls fall? by the power and presence of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith in what? By faith in the presence of God. By faith in the living God. By faith in the power of God. Theirs was a faith that recognized the presence and power of God to subdue kingdoms. The difference maker is always the presence of God. Are you listening, O church of Joshua? We are a church of such little faith. When God is in our midst, kingdoms are subdued. Be still and know that I am God. Our great resource is that we talk to an invisible God and we plead with him to advance his kingdom in the world. And the world looks at us and sees a bunch of loony folks who seem certifiably crazy. 
who read an outdated book that to them is filled with myths and tales, and God loves to take the foolish things of this world to confound the mighty. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to God alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. O church of little faith, you are anxious about so many things. You are uptight and worried and concerned. Be still. And know that he is God. He will be exalted in the heavens. He will be exalted on earth. Walking in circles didn't accomplish anything. The walls fell. Because the people of God honored God. And they honored God by their faith. That's how kingdoms are subdued. That's how the gospel advances, by faith. And the thing about faith, because if faith is anything, it's only measured by the object in which it is placed. And so if your faith is in the power and presence of God, then faith prohibits anyone from taking credit. Not a single Israelite could say that day, I did that. That was me. Look what I did. No, it's always look what he did. And God's order then to take the city was a powerful one. It came with a mandate that we must face head on. And the reading of the text, I skipped a couple of verses intentionally so that at the same time, at this moment, we could come back to it. What God ordered Joshua to do at Jericho was also repeated throughout Israel's conquest of the entire land. Again, I skipped over verses 17 through 19 and verse 21 on purpose, not to avoid it, but to come back to it. And now we pick it up in verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. It's somewhat breathtaking, isn't it? God told Joshua and the Israelites to exterminate every single Canaanite man, woman, child, and animal. This is what some have called the most bloody and difficult part of the Bible. And it does present in what seems to be an insurmountable moral problem. I mean, is this a glaring example of ethnic cleansing? 
or of atrocities of war done in the name of God. And history is way too often marked by these things. So is the divinely directed slaughter of the Canaanites proof that God is a moral monster? Or is there something more here? The conquest of the land of Canaan was a directive given by God to his people at a specific time and place. I can say, I think, with the absolute authority of God's word, that there is no case for holy wars in our world today. No wars ever to be conducted in the name of religion. The Israelites' conquest of the Canaanites is a clear case of a holy and perfect God judging the specific inhabitants of a location known as the land of Canaan. And God in his actions, God in his judgment is never arbitrary or unjust. The Canaanites were displaced because of their ferocious, habitual, unrepentant wickedness. And I do mean wickedness. The Canaanites took slavery to the darkest place that you can possibly take it. Religious prostitution and sexual cults. Scholars have called the Canaanite cult religion the most depraved of any in the entire ancient world. And their idol worship consisted of frequent human and child sacrifice. It is right for a holy God to eliminate a degenerate culture like the Canaanites for the sake of humanity. And that's what he is doing here. God was driving out the Canaanites so that he could reestablish the Israelites and the land that he promised them. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, when God promised the land to Abraham. And he told Abraham that, that your children are going to leave Canaan where Abraham was at the time, and they would be taken down to Egypt, and they would be oppressed for 400 years, and, and then they would come out of, of Egypt and, and eventually be reestablished in the land. But it's going to be well over 400 years from now before any of that even begins to happen because God said to Abraham, for the sin of the Israelites, or excuse me, the sin of the Amorites, has not yet come to completion. It's a very ominous phrase. The sins of the Amorites have not yet come to completion. In other words, what it seems to be saying is that God has set a limit on the amount of sin a culture can commit. And once it reaches that ceiling, then the judgment of God falls. So 400 years ago, God said to Abraham, it's not there yet. The Amorites are a sinful people, but they're going to sin even more. And then one day they're going to be sinning to such a full extent that I will say it's capped off. That's enough. And judgment will come. So for 400 years, God has been warning and God has been pleading and God has been announcing to the Amorites, to the Canaanites, synonymous terms, judgment is coming. And in Joshua chapter 6, judgment came. God's justice, beloved, is always perfect. He is, he is a God of such amazing love. He is the greatest lover in the universe. But he is also a God of great judgment. 
And when judgment comes, God always knows all the aggravating and mitigating circumstances. We do not. He knows everything. He sees the whole picture. His patience and his forgiveness are immense. He waits for repentance. He gives opportunities for people to choose between salvation and judgment. But he will not wait forever because judgment at some point is certain. You know, there are a lot of atheists, a lot of agnostics, a lot of critics of the Bible who look at this account and say, who could follow the God of Israel? Who could follow this archaic, mean God of the Old Testament? And, and, you know, the same people who are angry because God doesn't do anything about all the evil in the world are oftentimes the first to cry foul when God does exact judgment. So which is it? Jericho is simply a picture of the coming of God's universal judgment of sin because sin must be judged. You know this. You you feel it at every egregious act and every act of injustice in the world that happens today and our news is full of it every single day. That's wrong. And there must be judgment for that or else we cannot possibly live in a world that makes any sense. And the same God who ordered the total destruction of the Canaanites out of a moral necessity has now, and here's the great news for us, he has now commanded his people to go into the world and preach the gospel to every single person. The invasion today is completely different from the invasion of of the Israelites into the land of Canaan. But they are both part of the same story. Jesus says to us today, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Proclaim salvation to every single person, but mark it. One day, the commander of the Lord's armies will return. And John says in Revelation, with a sword extending from his mouth, and he will release the final judgment of God. The land of Canaan, the extermination of the Canaanites. It's just a small picture of what is to come. God's appeal to us today, and it is the the appeal of a God who loves you. It is the appeal of a God who is full of kindness and mercy and grace, is to be like Rahab, who believed and was spared when the day of judgment came. We pick up the account in verse 22, but to to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought her all, all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel Just for a little while, we read later on that she was brought in. Verse 24, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. A localized judgment of God came upon an evil people. 
but the warning had been sounded for 400 years. And over the course of those 400 years, here's a woman, a prostitute, who worked along the walls of Jericho, who said, I need to get right with God. And by her actions, both she and her family, by faith, were spared. It's the same message today. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. This is the day of God's loving kindness. And his appeal to you and to me is to run to him for refuge, run to him for shelter, run to him for protection from the judgment that is to come. We don't talk probably nearly enough about judgment because it makes us all squirm. It makes us all a little nervous. Do you really believe that? I believe that a day of judgment is coming for one reason. Because for those who will be spared from that judgment, it required the death of the infinite Son of God who gave his life on the cross for you and for me. And so again and again, the scriptures tell us, Jesus would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not come under condemnation, but will receive eternal life. This is the message of hope today. It's the word of grace. And I pray that you will hear it, receive it, come to Christ. Find your refuge in him. Let's pray. (coughs) Well, Father, we have looked at a pretty intense passage of Scripture today. to which we can't, Father, just quickly wrap things up and and move on for the rest of the day. But, Father, I ask you right now to seal our hearts and to seal in in our minds the response of surrender. That we would be like Joshua and fall to the ground with our face in the dirt. And declare you to be the living God. Father, for any of us who have been brought this morning to that very critical place. Where all of life is decided. Not just our mission and our purpose, but all of life is decided at that point. May that posture of submission and humility and surrender be ours. But, Father, the larger picture, certainly as we see the, the, the collapse of the walls of Jericho and the taking of the city, it's a picture, Father, of what is to come. Jesus Christ will return, and he will execute judgment. And those who are spared and are brought into life eternal are the ones who, right now, today, declare him to be Savior and Lord. For any of you in this room this morning that has, that has never done that, right now, run to Christ. Go to him and surrender. 
And you will find him to be a God of such amazing acceptance and kindness, love and mercy. He will fully embrace you. As he did for Rahab and her family, so he will do for you today. Run to Christ. And Father, as we do, thank you for the fullness that we receive in him. To the praise and glory of your holy name. And we ask this because of Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Let me invite you to stand as we, as we close this morning and even as we sing. May the words of, of God, may all that he has spoken to you today, not what a human voice has said, but what he has said, be sealed in your hearts as you focus upon him.